On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Alex DePrima about Spurgeon's political vision. So we talk about all sorts of topics like just what is his vision for politics in the abstract? Did this change over time? What's, what was Spurgeon's practice with politics? Did he allow them any place in the pulpit? What were Spurgeon's personal political views? Would Spurgeon hold to any form of what might be called Christian nationalism? Did Spurgeon comment in print on Britain's foreign policy and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this is going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And in being serious, we want to seriously cultivate a couple of virtues, intellectual virtues we see, uh, which are charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and then cheerful confessionalism. So I think these are marks of just our intellectual engagement, as well as our personal relationships with others. Hopefully we are displaying charity to those who differ with, differ from us. Hopefully we're displaying a, a cheerfulness about the fact that we confess the Second London Confession of Faith and find that a faithful summary of doctrine. Uh, just saying, like, look, we're happy about this. We're excited about the, the, the good news that we find here, uh, the, the faithful and sound words that are here. As well as being curious and, and thinking critically uh, just across the board, I think curiosity is an underappreciated uh, virtue in Christianity. Uh, just being curious about what others think and why they think it rather than being suspicious. So I think there's a, a fine line between those two things. Just being curious and being honest, like, hey, tell me more about that. I want to understand. And today I'm looking forward to introducing you guys to a familiar guest, Alex Prima, who is, I, I don't know, are you senior pastor or are you just pastor? Uh, we don't use the senior pastor label, but when people use that word, I do a lot of the activities that go along with that, most right. of the preaching and all that. So, so Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem, uh, we, me and Brandon, uh, at the time of this recording, we were actually just there this week, so we had a great time at the Feed My Sheep conference. So if you're not familiar with that, they do that annually, so you'll need to check that out. Great conference, uh, wonderful worship. I mean, I, I love conferences that do acapella singing, uh, so that's oh, yeah. just a beautiful thing to me. But we're going to be talking about Charles Spurgeon and his relationship to politics, his practice of it, his theology of it. I mean, politics is like public theology, all those sort of things are super hot right now in the Christian theological, especially evangelical world. So I think it's always helpful to to go back to the past, to step out of our own, I guess, little world, our little bubble and say, how did Christians in past ages think about this? Because they can show us some of our blind spots, show us some of our weaknesses and maybe show us some areas that yeah, yeah. Well, I think we got this right because there is continuity across across history. So, before we do that, Alex, I know I gave you a little bit of an intro, but maybe tell us something interesting about yourself. And then, I know we know why you got into Spurgeon if you've listened to our previous episodes. So maybe, what is it about Spurgeon and his political thinking that is super interesting to you? Mm-hmm. Well, guys, thanks for having me on. Love what you're doing with the podcast. Um, you all have introduced me to a new phrase that I love and I've repeated many times uh, since hearing it from you all, and that is that that phrase, cheerful confessionalism, which I think that as a, a value, something you guys are trying to promote, is awesome. Appreciate the shout-out you gave to the Second London Confession. I grew up in a circle of churches that held to that confession and and saw wonderful examples of, of what I would call cheerful confessionalism. But then there were some who were a little more— uh, 
what should we say, cantankerous in, in the way they uh, held to their confessional distinctives. And um, I think the way in which you are carrying on dialogues here with different scholars seeking to promote healthy uh, dialogue across disciplines, trying to promote a vision for um, a love of the truth and doctrine and of confessionalism that is charitable and gracious. Anyway, well done, brothers. And um, it's a privilege to be on here again with you guys. Um, yeah, so uh, my background is, uh, my, my academic background is in uh, Spurgeon studies, did my doctorate with Nathan Finn at Southeastern Seminary, and um, focused on his, Spurgeon's view of uh, social engagement, mercy ministry and good works, to a lesser degree politics, and um, uh, I've just found Spurgeon studies to be to be a field uh, that is uh, understudied and needs lots of scholarly attention. And so, very little has been done on Spurgeon in that arena. Uh, interesting things you asked. Um, I'm working. I'm under contract with Reformation Heritage now on a book on Spurgeon's view of mercy, ministry, and good works that I hope will come out late 2022, early 2023, and then an edited volume with H and E on Spurgeon's. Uh, uh, pastoral addresses and lectures uh, to students in ministry. Uh, so an edited volume of a lot of the stuff he does in lectures to my students, another book called An All-Around Ministry, the introductory essays and footnotes and all of that. So that'll be coming out, God willing, sometime uh, mid mid to late 2022. Um, so excited about this project and excited to talk about Spurgeon. Um, yeah, he, uh, a lot of people talk about Spurgeon in politics um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Spurgeon and politics. There hasn't been much that's been written from a scholarly standpoint, except there was an old dissertation written in 1973 uh, by uh, a guy named Albert Meredith, uh, actually from Michigan State University. Um, it's a fascinating uh, thesis, very helpful just to kind of get the lay of the land of what Spurgeon's political views were, what kind of his take on, on various social issues was. And, um, other than that, uh, David Bebbington wrote an article on Spurgeon's politics, and then you have um, a critical biography by a woman named Patricia Kruppa, uh, written in, I think, the late 70s, early 80s, called A Preacher's Progress, and she has a really substantial chapter in there called Spurgeon, A Political Preacher. And uh, in my dissertation, I kind of take take aim at at Kreppa a little bit. I think she's misunderstood Spurgeon. But um, so anyway, there's a lot to be seen there, a lot to consider there. And uh, so that's why I was drawn to the topic. So maybe just at a high level, let's just start with a basic question of, you know, what what was his vision of, of politics? And I know we'll get into more details um, a little bit later about specific issues. And also maybe when you answer this question, uh, as much as possible, give us a lay of the land of what just the political uh, landscape was like in Britain at the time. Yeah, so, yeah, Spurgeon uh, is a Victorian, born in 1834, dies in 1892. He's 57 when he dies. And uh, the two main parties in England at the time are uh, the Liberal Party, sometimes referred to as the Tories, and then uh, you, excuse me, you, uh, the Conservative Party sometimes referred to as the Tories, and the Liberal Party sometimes referred to as the Whigs. Though that term is kind of uh, falling out of favor into the later uh, 19th century. But um, I would not think of liberal and conservative in the ways we think about them in the American context. Um, it, you know, context is everything, really. And what liberal meant in the 19th century in England is going to be different than what it means, you know, in America today. Uh, the conservatives, uh, they would have favored uh, a lot of the historic institutions 
uh, would have wanted to support many of the historic institutions prevalent in England, the monarchy and uh, the Church of England and other such things. Uh, they also tended to favor state paternalism. Uh, they tended to favor a more aggressive foreign policy and, um, yeah, things like that. The liberals would have been much more oriented toward free trade, uh, big emphasis on markets and free, freer, at least markets, um, openness to reconsider the place of certain institutions in national life, uh, definitely oriented toward expanding the franchise. So in Spurgeon's lifetime, I don't have the exact figures before me, but the franchise, uh, the vote basically, I think, triples over the course of his life. Who could vote in in English society? So you have the emergence of like the middle class. Um, this is you know massive era of industrial expansion. Britain is still one of the world's major superpowers, um, though that's beginning to wane by the end of Spurgeon's life. Um, lots of foreign policy engagements, uh, minor wars. They also have colonies in places like India and other places. Um, so that's all kind of in the background of, of, of Spurgeon's political scene. Um, I, I just should emphasize this, though, about Spurgeon when we talk about his views of politics or his views even of a theology of politics or uh, his view of engagement in the public square. I would not consider Spurgeon technically a theologian. Uh, and by that, I mean, number one, he was never educated as a theologian, never even went to college. Uh, and in his early years, he wouldn't have been allowed to go to Cambridge or Oxford. Oxford and Cambridge were still closed to what were called nonconformists or dissenters until I believe around 1871. So if you were not an Anglican and a member of the state church, you could not go to those two universities. That changes kind of middle of Spurgeon's life. Um, but more than that, Spurgeon didn't write theological works. He wrote practical Christian life stuff. He was a preacher. Uh, he published his sermons. He published you know, popular level books about grace and about salvation, um, which were often sermon conversion kind of things. And so so anyway, so his views are, are primarily from the standpoint of a pastor, and um, that's going to be his emphasis. So in terms of what he actually thought about politics and political engagement, social engagement, um, he certainly believed that Christians had a responsibility to the degree that they had opportunity uh, to be engaged in the political process. And uh, that was primarily to promote uh, the ideals of Christ's kingdom, the ideals of uh, Scripture. They, they should vote for the good of their neighbors. People should vote for uh, policies that will accommodate the spread of the gospel and the health of the church, should vote for policies and candidates who will uphold uh, the values and virtues that Christians hold dear. Um, so he wanted he wanted his members to be engaged in the political process. He encouraged members to be prayerful about their vote, very thoughtful about their vote, to do it as before the face of God. And so he definitely is going to encourage engagement in the political process. But alongside that, um, and, and I, I bring this up in my dissertation and somewhat in the book I've, I've written with Reformation Heritage, Spurgeon is deeply suspicious of the political arena. Uh, so he has very low expectations for what might be achieved in the political realm in terms of advancing Christian concerns. Uh, so he believes in the separation of church and state. He's certainly against any idea of a state church. Um, but he also, he, 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 he kind of stands off from politics, and he, though he has some friends who are in the political arena, though he occasionally speaks to political issues publicly— uh, he he could sometimes be pretty dismissive of politics, and I do think you see over the course of his life a growing disillusionment 
with uh, the political landscape and Christians who would give to, uh, an inordinate amount of attention to seeking to, to, to seek to influence uh, the world through the political arena. He's a local church guy. He wants to see pastors raised up, churches planted. He thinks as the gospel goes forward and Christian principles are embraced by more and more people, that's the best thing we can do for society. And he's not this kind of guy who's trying to put his hands on the gears and levers of politics as the primary means of affecting social change. He wants to preach the gospel and plant churches. That's what he's about. He's working for a kingdom that's not of this world, and and that's where he's going to give give his attention. And like I said in, 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 at the beginning of this time, I do think a lot of people have exaggerated Spurgeon's interest in politics. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased to say there's a growing number of scholars who are recognizing this, though he occasionally kind of drops in on a political issue. Uh, almost always that political issue is going to have some connection to religious concerns, almost always. And it's going to be occasional and rare. It's not like we shouldn't imagine he's like Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell or something like that. I mean, he was an open liberal, and by that I mean a a, a, a Whig. Um, you know, he favored that party. He at times, you know, it, it tried to influence uh, the vote for a certain candidate. But it wasn't like he was an activist or some kind of shill for a, a particular political party. Um, he had a suspicion of politics and was. Yeah, suspicious of what ultimately would be achieved in that arena. But again, let's engage in the process for sure as Christians. If we could affect good in that arena, he's for that. So I think a lot of pastors, at least today, probably struggle with, like, how much should I mention anything political in the pulpit? Is mm -hmm. this reserved just for specifically the ministry of the Word, and I just completely avoid political applications whatsoever, or is it I can make my pulpit a political stump speech depending on, on what it is? So what, what's Spurgeon's practice with that, and what's his thinking on that? Yeah, so Spurgeon, at least in his, his, his actual teaching, is going to be pretty severely opposed to bringing politics into the pulpit. Uh, so at one point, uh, you know, because you got to recognize what's going on in, at Spurgeon's in Spurgeon's time period, the Anglican Church, the establishment, has has been uh, the, the the big guy on campus for a couple of centuries. But Spurgeon is coming into his kingdom, coming into his own, at the height of nonconformist influence or dissenting influence. That is all the the uh, 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 religious groups that don't identify with the Church of England, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, Quakers, etc. Th that group, that constituency has never been more powerful. It's never been had larger representation. It's anywhere from a third to half of the nation, actually, in Spurgeon's prime. So he is the premier nonconformist pastor at the height of nonconformity's influence in England's history. And... Um, he would have had, I mean, he would have influenced the votes of tens of thousands of people the nation over. I think what we see is Spurgeon largely turning his back on that influence, and only rarely does he make use of that political capital he had gained by virtue of being one of the most prominent voices in, in the dissenting world, the nonconformist world. And so at one point, people are getting more and more nervous about Spurgeon's profile, and they get, they're, 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 they're accusing him of being... Uh, potentially someone positioning himself to be a voice for what's called political dissent or political nonconformity. And uh, he sort of preemptively tries to address that concern. And he actually charges any critics. He says, go ahead and look through all my 
my uh, manuscripts are all published. If you could find 18 words that even speak to politics, uh, uh, you, you will have proved me wrong. He just said, I, I don't preach about politics in the pulpit. And I'm telling you guys, I'm looking right now. I got uh, every volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit and lots of other volumes besides. You can go through entire volumes, and that's like 700 pages of material, like like really small print material, without seeing you know maybe a passing reference to politics. Now, that's not to say he will address certain political issues. Like he is vehemently opposed to uh, the Anglican establishment and will advocate for the disestablishment of the state church. He occasionally in sermons would have addressed slavery, occasionally would have addressed certain foreign policy blunders in, in British life or certain current events. But it's just not true that this guy was was a political preacher in the sense that he's constantly taking up political issues. And then when you read Lectures to My Students or another book on pastoral ministry called An All-Round Ministry, you'll see him urging his students not to bring politics into the pulpit. You know, he just thought that the pulpit is no place for partisan wrangling. It's no place for trying to support a particular political party. We're preaching the gospel and building up the saints. Politics can be pursued in another venue. Now, I would put one qualifier on that. That's his view of the pulpit. Keep in mind, alongside his sermons, which he's publishing, he's also publishing a monthly magazine called The Sword and the Trowel. And in The Sword and the Trowel, we see more freedom in Spurgeon to speak to political issues. So occasionally he'll have an article in there about some political issue going on because he felt the pulpit's not the place and my local church is not the place for me to address this issue. But I feel like outside the pulpit and outside the public worship of God, I'm a little more free. So if you want to know Spurgeon's political views, it's going to be more in the sword and the trowel that you're going to find it. Now, in in our current context today, um, Christian nationalism is kind of a buzzword. I mean, it's it, and to be totally honest with you, I'm not even sure what people mean by it a lot of the times when they use sure. it. I'm sure there is a formal definition for it or something somewhere, but... You know, sometimes it's any time a politician, you know, says the word God or something is that Christian nationalism, you know. So there's just seems to be a lot of confusion about what it even is. But um, if you can, well, actually, I'd like to get your take on, on that whole phenomenon in, in where, general. Like where would Spurgeon be on well, Christian nationalism? That's, my, that's part two of the question. Part one would just okay, be yeah. kind of, uh, you know, on just when it comes to politics and the church today, um, you know, what do you make of this charge of Christian mm. nationalism? Well, yeah, it depends entirely on what people mean by that term. If by Christian nationalism you mean promoting like something like a state church or something like the erosion of the separation between church and state or uh, or something like, you know, we should believe that if, 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 take America, for example, we behave in a certain way or build this country on certain principles, we'll be treated by God as a new Israel, having a national covenant or something like that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not into that at all. I don't see that. I don't support that. If by Christian nationalism you mean the promotion of Christian virtues and values in the public square being a useful thing and something we want to promote, I don't see why we would not. Again, my personal posture is is not entirely different from Spurgeon's. I'm going to be somewhat suspicious, ultimately, of what could be achieved in that arena, primarily because of my biblical convictions. I do see exegetically a sort of deep-seated antipathy uh, between the world and the church, that I just feel we're always going to feel. I don't think we'll ever feel totally at home in our own nations. I don't think we'll always feel totally at home in, in this world. And so people who might give, I would say, an inordinate amount of attention to seeking to realize the transformation of society and culture and politics along Christian lines, I want to support brothers who are you know, making good efforts in that arena. Uh, I 
at this moment, Brandon, I tend to think some people are a little too optimistic. And I have a limited perspective, but among my peers and my sense of what's going on out there in the wider world, some people would be too optimistic by what could be achieved in the political arena. Yeah. And I think Spurgeon would, would, would agree with me on that in his own context. So when it comes to Spurgeon, I mean, his own personal political views, are there anything that you think would surprise people? Like, wow, I, I wouldn't expect somebody like Spurgeon to hold that political view or just even in our own, you know, we're all Americans in our context. I mean, is there something that would kind of chafe against what most American yeah, conservatives no. would think is the right thing to think about politics? Possibly. That's a great question, Jordan. If I could just put a, a PS on that Christian nationalism question, as far as Spurgeon goes, he's going to be ferociously opposed to any idea of a state church. There is a state church in England, and he wants to see it disestablished. And that's where he's going to put most of his political chips. But even there, you kind of see that's that's a religious concern he has. That's not purely a political issue. But he wants to see the establishment undone in England. So in that sense, I guess he's not a Christian nationalist. But then on the other side of the coin, he definitely wants to promote Christian values in the public arena. And he's calling England back to some of the Christian values that did— that were there at the founding of the nation and that were prominent throughout England's history. So history and context, I think, matters a lot with that one. In terms of your question, Jordan, I think that Spurgeon's political views are fairly predictable. Um, now, I don't know what people would expect. I've been on here before talking about the whole slavery issue. Uh, when a lot of people were silent on that issue, Spurgeon is standing up against it in it's slavery in America. So he goes out of his way, really to make that a bone of contention to his own personal loss and hurt, actually. So he's going to speak out against slavery, and he's going to lose a lot of friends and, frankly, a lot of money over it. And uh, the opportunity to support even some of his own ministries that he was supporting with income he lost due to his stand on slavery. Um, okay, so one issue, and again, there's some misunderstanding on this, but a lot of people think Spurgeon was a pacifist. Um and that might surprise people. Now, he's not a pure pacifist. That's a misunderstanding. So I can't remember who it was. There's an article out there by some more progressive evangelical that got passed around a lot that argued that Spurgeon was a pacifist. He, he was not. He actually supported certain wars. He supported the American Civil War. He thought it was a righteous cause that should be pursued. Um, but that said, he's extremely negative about war. And that is also one of the areas where he will be most vocally critical of his government and when, when he actually will speak up. So in 1886, that's the year he's he's the most political. He is so distressed over Benjamin Disraeli's foreign policy, the conservative prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, his, his, his uh, conflicts in different regions that he speaks out and actually tries to influence a local election. He actually uh, produces a small pamphlet and passes it around South London or has it passed around. Um, so very, very negative about war. And again, I don't know if that's surprising to people. Uh, the other area uh, that, I don't know, might surprise people, he was generally an advocate for public education. So there was no public education in England until uh, around 1870. And um, he is one of, in, in this sense, he breaks with a lot of the liberal party by actually supporting a system of public education, state-sponsored education. Now, that, now it's with certain qualifications. He insists he thinks there should be Bible reading in the schools and prayer, and that's a condition he stipulates. But um, a, a lot of people in his day would have broken for him and disagreed with him on his, his view of public education, but he was an advocate for it and uh, thought it would not only 
serve the wider public, it also would accommodate the spread of Christianity in England. So those are a few things that stand out. Now, well, this is more like social engagement more than strictly political engagement. And I've talked to you guys on this podcast before about this, but he is he is sold out and devoted to good works and mercy ministry. And sadly, I think in our day and age, due to a lot of the fundamentalist modernist controversies of the early 20th century in America and kind of the offshoots of evangelicalism and fundamentalism and even neo-evangelicalism, some of the things Spurgeon says and does in the area of social engagement will sound kind of liberal and left-leaning and wokey mm-hmm. uh, to modern ears. But to pretty much any Christian in the world ever in any culture prior to 1930 in America, yeah. it would have sounded like basic faithful Christianity. Mm-hmm. So that that would be another issue there. So uh, now I, I kind of want to get at the issue of, of how we— and this is, I guess, getting back to some of the, the fundamental virtues that we want to promote on the podcast, but uh, when it comes to how, especially men in ministry, um, speak to and speak about others uh, that may be in ministry or maybe not on the other side of the political aisle. So I guess here to tie this back to Spurgeon, how we've already established he's a nonconformist, he's a Baptist, he wants the state church to be disestablished, but what was his posture personally toward Church of England ministers? Um, was he friendly yeah. with them? Even though they they probably disagreed with him politically, I would assume, since they were part of the state yeah. church. So what did that look like, in writing or or just in person? Brandon, that's a superb question, and it's a fascinating subject, and I almost wrote my dissertation on that issue. So I began wanting to write on Spurgeon's relationship with Anglicans and his sort of Baptist Catholicity. And um, that... It's a complicated narrative, actually. Um, in some ways, I think, from what I know of the London Lyceum and what I know of, of you two brothers and how your hearts beat, you're going to find everything you love and believe in Charles Spurgeon in the realm of Baptist Catholicity and cheerful confessionalism. But there are some things you're going to be like, oh, don't really love that. you know. So take the Anglicans, for example. Spurgeon begins his career. Now, granted, he's a kid. He's 17 when he becomes a pastor. 15, 16, when he becomes a preacher, you know, so, and he comes to London when he's 19 in, in one of the most well-known and historic Baptist pulpits in London, the largest city in the world at that time. Benjamin Keach was the pastor there. John Gill was the pastor there. John Rippon was the pastor there. Now here comes the boy preacher from the boondocks, you know, and uh, he is foaming at the mouth, just vituperative in his statements about the Church of England. Now, understand his context. This is a kid who's like something like great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, was put in prison by Anglicans, okay? Uh, you are a second-class citizen in England in the 1830s and 1840s if you are a non-Anglican. You you cannot go to Oxford and Cambridge, as I already said. Uh, you uh, uh, cannot sit in Parliament, that changes, I think, in the 1830s. Uh, you don't have to be an Anglican to sit in Parliament. But that takes some time. You know, there's a lag to see political representation for dissenters during that time as well. Uh, you're still Your taxes, in part, go to pay for uh, the establishment, and church rates is what they were called. Uh, you cannot even bury your dead in public graveyards without the Anglican burial rites. So you couldn't even have a proper burial as a dissenter. So all kinds of things like that. So you are second class big time, and Spurgeon felt that. Um, uh, it's, it's not actually—I know this is completely a completely different context, but 
it'd be interesting, and maybe I said this on a previous episode, if if you want to explore how Christians in the past have dealt with oppression, I think studying Baptists and nonconformists in England is a great a great test case. How did nonconformists in the 1700s and 1800s deal with uh, being oppressed by a superior class of people, and in this case, their brothers and sisters in Christ in the Church of England? So he's got that class issue. He's got that chip on his shoulder. He was he wasn't allowed at the lunch table with the Anglican kids. That's just a factor for him, and it comes across. It's just a bite to his comments. And um, when he starts releasing editions of The Sword and the Trowel, which, uh, let's see, when did The Sword and the Trowel begin? I think 1865, even by then. So he's 31 by that time, or uh, I guess 30 when they start releasing them. He's publishing like lurid cartoons of Anglican priests, like publicly mocking them, like Anglican priests, like eating from a pig's trough with a bunch of other pigs, you know, just mocking the Anglican Church, and uh, very almost like Martin Luther, you know, these these kind of scurrilous pamphlets you hear that Luther produced, woodcuts and things. There's some of that. So if you read through those early editions of the Sword and the Trial, you're like, man, this guy is just fire-breathing in his opposition to Anglicans. Well, there's a reason for that, uh, another contextual reason for that. 1865 is when the Sword and the Trial comes out with its first issues. In 1864, Spurgeon preaches his most popular sermon. By that, I mean the best-selling sermon he ever preached. It's on the subject of baptismal regeneration. I can't remember the exact date. I want to say it's in June of 1864. And he, he prayed you know, for weeks leading up to this sermon, he felt the burden of the Lord was upon him and that he had, this was his chance to take a shot at the Church of England. And the big issue for him is he believes, and it's not hard to see his case, that the uh, Anglican Articles of Faith uh, advocate for baptismal regeneration. And he is calling out his brothers and sisters in the Anglican Communion saying, you know, if you really if you don't believe this, you need to have integrity and resign from the Anglican Communion. And if you believe this, well, you're halfway to Rome, you know, as far as he's concerned. And he just blasts him in that sermon. Um, and uh, as a result, I mean, the sermon is incredibly popular. He thought that he was going to lose all kinds of friends and that he was no one would ever buy his sermons again and whatever. It just makes him more popular. Now, he does. He is forced to leave the Evangelical Alliance over that sermon. He's a part of the Evangelical Alliance. Spurgeon is a he wants to be part of the group. He joins lots of groups. Uh but he's he's kicked out of the Evangelical Alliance because he won't retract that sermon. A lot of Anglicans are very frustrated with him. Uh and then even some Baptist congregationalists are frustrated with him also. What we see over the course of Spurgeon's life is a softening of his posture toward Anglicans. Um uh, and even in the sixties, he is celebrating the things he shares in common with the Anglicans. And so he becomes much more ironic in his disposition toward the Church of England throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, still maintaining a significant divide with them, but sharing much more public friendship with him. I think you kind of, with them, uh, you kind of catch this in one of these famous punchy quotes that Spurgeon has. You guys know who George Herbert is, the Anglican poet? He was a, a poet in the oh, 17th century, um, beautiful, wonderful poet, and uh uh, he loves George Herbert, reads George Herbert's wife would read George Herbert to him when he was depressed, and he would just cry, and he just loved it. And so he has this great quote. He says something like, um, he refers to Anglicanism as high churchism. And he says, I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert, and Christ loves George Herbert. 
And as long as Christ loves George Herbert, I must love George Herbert. It's this great kind of together for the gospel kind of statement that even though we divide over liturgy and baptism and all these different things, we're together in Christ and we must love our brothers and sisters. I think that's in the early 70s that that quote's out there. And so um, so it's interesting, by the end of his life, you know, he has this terrible conflict with uh, the Baptists and the Baptist Union and decides he needs to resign from the Baptist Union. It's the Anglicans that really receive him and befriend him. And by the end of his life, he's he's just appreciating the fellowship communion he has with Anglican brothers and sisters. And he doesn't become an Anglican himself, but um, but he is much more excited by the breadth of the Christian family by the end of his life. So so I would say he starts off a, a fiery young nonconformist Baptist, and he softens over the course of his life. That's that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that's my my five minutes there. So now I've got this just interesting question because you're talking about just almost the, the relational factors, how that shapes thinking. And I ever since I mean I listened to Carl Truman's like 35 lectures on the Reformation, and one thing that really stood out to me, I probably ne- never forget when he talked about how important and influential friendships are in thinking mm, about his, history, theological history, and all that goes on with it. So and Spurgeon maintained lots of friendships with influential Anglicans. So yeah. that's what I'm curious. Do any of his friendships end up shaping him one way or another when it comes to this sort of thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I was talking to Ray Rhodes, who I think you've had on the podcast before. He's a dear friend. He's been in my home. We get together every now and again. And uh, Ray's working on what I hope will be something of a definitive biography of Spurgeon with a, with a B&H. Uh, and Ray has talked about doing a book on Spurgeon's friendships. I've talked about doing it. We've talked about maybe doing something like that together someday. Um, some of the most interesting friendships Spurgeon has are with Anglicans. And there were evangelical Anglicans. So so that's a big fight going on in the Anglican communion at this time. I think Spurgeon hoped that he could influence some of the evangelicals to come out of the Anglican communion. Uh, so J.C. Ryle is a contemporary of Spurgeon. Ryle's, I think, a little bit older. His dates are something like 1816 to 1898, I think, maybe 1900, something like that. And they, I think, exchange a few letters, but I don't think they ever met in person that I'm aware of. But but Spurgeon admires Ryle, and Ryle admires Spurgeon. Ryle, in, in his famous little treatise, Simplicity in Preaching, which, by the way, any preachers on here listening to me, you can get that pamphlet for free online, Simplicity in Preaching. It's one of the best little things on preaching you'll read. Ryle commends Spurgeon. You know, he goes out of his way to say, you know, uh, I'm not embarrassed to throw in my lot with him and say, you know, he's a guy who's who's preaching the gospel faithfully. And then Spurgeon will recommend some of Ryle's commentaries and things like that in The Sword on the Trail. One of the most influential relationships, I think, would be his relationship with uh, Lord Shaftesbury. Uh, so Lord Shaftesbury is one of the foremost kind of public statesmen in England. Um, he's a philanthropist. He's a social reformer. Uh, I guess his name would be... Anthony Ashley Cooper, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury or something like that. They have all these titles there. But he's known as to history as Lord Shaftesbury. And was involved in all kinds of reform in factories and he's he pioneers ragged schools and Sunday schools for the poor. Just a, an unbelievable man. And Spurgeon uh is very close with Shaftesbury. Shaftesbury's often in his home. Uh, Shaftesbury presides over, I think it's Spurgeon's 50th birthday celebration. They have it at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and all these people come and speak, and Shaftesbury's kind of the chairman of the meeting. And then when Shaftesbury dies, uh, Spurgeon uh, provides the most touching eulogy, I think in a sermon, maybe, or maybe in an article in The Sword and the Trowel. 
and says he's just one of the best men of the age and that we need more Christians like like Lord Shaftesbury. Uh, so that's an influential friendship. Uh, he's, he's, he's decent friends with uh, William Gladstone, by no means an evangelical Anglican, but he's a, a, a friend he's pretty close with. Uh, Gladstone was the prime minister of England at three different times. Um, I don't know to what degree that influenced Spurgeon's view of Anglicans, but so yeah, it'd be an interesting thing to to explore in greater depth. Yeah. I wonder if you'll speak to pastors who are listening here. Um, maybe this, maybe the answer to this question just goes back and highlights some of the things, the good and the bad that we've already discussed. But um, what what can pastors learn from Spurgeon's practice and posture uh, toward politics that you think would be beneficial uh, for us today? Well, you're asking me what I think is beneficial, so I'm going to say what I see in Spurgeon and what I want to commend in Spurgeon. So uh, I I do think Spurgeon is going to tell pastors today, make the main thing the main thing. You're a minister of the gospel. You're an ambassador for Christ. You are not trying to build any kind of earthly kingdom. You are not you know, platforming for a career in politics. Your work has to do with the building of, of the kingdom of another world. You are to... Uh, preach the gospel unto the saving of souls, unto the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that is the mission. That's the work you're doing. You are building Christ's church and make that what you give your life to. That's his vision for for the pastoral ministry. That's what the preacher's doing. And so he's going to urge his students, guys, you know, uh, uh, you know, politics, uh, you know, will deceive you and it'll overpromise and underdeliver. Do not make the pulpit the the arena for political wrangling and platforming. Um, so that's a big thing he's going to say. And also, I, I tend to think in general, going to be, um, yeah, pessimistic on uh, what might be achieved in the political realm in terms of social change. He would say, build churches, advance the gospel, let's see people come to Christ, and that's how we impact the culture, primarily. Uh, but at the same time, on the other end of that, Spurgeon was a man who knew how to speak to a pressing moral issue or public issue or political issue, and he did that on occasion. He did it in 19, or, uh, 1857 with the Indian mutiny uh, that happened in India, um, You know, uh, basically a rebellion there where a number of British soldiers were killed, and he preaches the fast day sermon. Uh, Queen Victoria asked him to preach that sermon. He steps in and does it. He spoke out against slavery in the late 1850s, early 1860s. He spoke to what he saw as travesties in the realm of foreign policy uh, and did so occasionally in sermons. In his articles, uh, he, he was opposed to Irish or yeah, he was opposed to Irish home rule and was willing to speak to that publicly. He thought there were religious implications to that. He supported you know, when there was a, an issue that faced him that he felt uh, encroached on religious territory. That would qualify someone, a man of the cloth. Well, he wouldn't say that at all. He'd eschew that kind of language. But uh, uh, as as a preacher, this is our turf. Like like inhumanely enslaving people, we have something as Christians to say about that. Uh, ministering to the poor and educating the the poorer classes and making opportunities for them to to better themselves, to love our neighbors, we have something to say about that. Travesties carried on in other lands by our government, we should speak out against those things. So. So he would say, you know, brother pastor, where there's a, a a a glaring social or moral issue, political issue that requires men of God to speak, like to be faithful to our Lord. Don't be afraid to get up to the plate and do that. But um, 
but the sort of everyday, let's read the headlines and begin all of our sermons with the headlines and all of our applications have to do with politics. And and, and again, all the Pat Roberts and Jerry Falwell kind of stuff, that's not where he is. Even Billy Graham kind of stuff. I think he would have thought Billy Graham was a little too immersed in the political arena and valued political friendships and alignments too much and was just too optimistic. I think I think Billy Graham was probably chastened later in his career, as some of his biographers have identified, that he eventually became more disillusioned with the political arena. But early Billy Graham and mid, mid-life Billy Graham, I think Spurgeon would say that's going too far. Um, so anyway, uh, so those would be, I think, some of the, it's, it's a both-end kind of thing, a suspicion of a sort of hyperfixation on politics, but then also encouraging men not to, not to um, be too halting or to stand back or step back from saying things that must be said that faithfulness to Christ would require. Now, I'm going to steal Brandon's new famous question. Since you are a Baptist historian, and me and Brandon are Baptists, we've got to ask about what are your top three, I guess, favorite, for any particular reason, maybe you just they're precious to you for some reason, or they're, you find them super helpful, uh, Baptist historical resources. So this could be actual primary sources or more historical uh, overview of you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th century sort of stuff. Does it have to be narrowly Baptist? I mean, I'm fine not being narrowly Baptist. Maybe Brandon, yeah. Brandon, you can be the Baptist police if you want. Well, the, yeah, there are, there are broader... The question is uh, supposed to be just to Baptist, but, you know. So. <laughs> well, I want to play We're going to do rules, this. Let's Brandon. do it right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was reared on some of those big classic texts. Is it, uh, is it uh, James Leo Garrett's... Uh, four centuries of Baptist history. I think I actually have it on my Which, shelf here. speaking of James Leo Garrett, I, I've never read any of his stuff. Have you read his Systematic Theology? I see it passed around a lot. Is, is it worth it? No, I've not. Okay. No, I've not read it, but I want to read it. Okay. But no, he has a study. I'm looking at it now. Hold on. I'm grabbing this off the shelf. James Leo Garrett, uh, Baptist Theology, a four century study. Uh, I also read Brackney's A Genetic History of Baptist Thought. I found those two texts in conversation with one another to be very helpful and eye-opening. Uh, I read a ton of Bevington, David Bevington, in preparation for my doctoral work, because Bevington is, in many ways, a Spurgeon expert. And uh, I loved his book, Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, and then some of the offshoot projects that have come out of that. One of what I will tell you, if you want to grow in your knowledge of evangelicalism and also how Baptists are situated within evangelicals, I think taking—, taking um, uh, uh, Bebbington's Evangelicalism in Modern Britain. That's where he, I think that's where he pioneers the Bebbington quadrilateral. Uh, what is it? Biblicism, crucicentrism, activism, and what am I saying? Conversionism. That's where he sort of coined that, that model and that framework. And then Michael Haken and I think Kenneth Brown uh, uh, have basically a, a big volume, maybe 500 pages, that is basically a, an appreciative critique of Bevington, evangelicalism in modern Britain, uh, on uh, they call kind of historical continuities in evangelical life. And I forgot the title off the top of my hand. But that that really enriched my view of the evangelical tradition. And that got me kind of involved in a conversation that's been happening there and helped me to situate kind of where Baptists are in that larger evangelical story. So those would be some of the big ones I throw out there. Well, I, oh, I have one final question just so we can um, anger everybody, no matter what the answer is. 
you know, you guys love getting me on here and you ask me all the controversial questions that then people get upset about on Twitter. Yeah, have me on here to talk about race and CRT and social justice and so this, you know. this is a anyway go this for it, is Brandon. a what would Spurgeon say about question okay so what would Spurgeon say about national flags being put in the sanctuary <laughs> uh you're asking me to speculate because yes. to my knowledge he doesn't address that I think he would be opposed to that I think now now uh Spurgeon is very proud to be British so He's for the record, you're saying Englishman. you can be proud of your country and love your country and not oh. think that the flag should be in the sanctuary, just so we're... Yeah, I, I, I don't mind telling people this. We were given a lovely building in northwest Winston-Salem. It had American flags in it. Uh, we were renting from a church for a while. I didn't make any effort to move those flags. But the first thing I did, I left the lawyer's office after signing the papers when we became the new owners on the building. First thing I did was put the flag in the closet because we're not primarily an outpost for the United States of America or a center for nationalistic pride. We're a center, an embassy of the kingdom of God. And I think Spurgeon thought exactly that way. Yeah. And he had a large heart, a broad heart for what God was doing throughout the centuries all over the world. And though he loved being British and he reveled in national pride, yeah. uh, uh, he, I think he would have seen that as an unhealthy mixture Mm. of of national pride and the worship of God and the identity of the people of God. Yeah, Brandon. Now, I, I'm speculating, yeah. guys. I, yeah. He never, uh, to my knowledge, never talks about it. But from what I know of Spurgeon, I think I got him right there. Yeah. This this is a fun game, Brandon. I, I wish we would have thought of this like before we started like <laughs> yeah, recording yeah, all these yeah, episodes. That should, I wonder, that should be a question I, that we ask everybody now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, would, would Spurgeon have voted for Donald Trump? <laughs> Let me think about that. Why don't I... Why don't I Get in some more trouble, right? <laughs> well, here's one that I don't think will get you in as much trouble, but I think it is interesting. Would What would Spurgeon say about all these, like, centers for public theology? Um, is that a good thing? Just And whether mm -hmm. it's conservative or liberal, yeah, I don't you... care. Just, oh. like, churches putting resources and money into creating, uh, I guess, just sort of pseudo-institutions that try to talk about public, political sort of mm -hmm. theology. Well, that's a good question. You know, he 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 wasn't educated himself, but w was heavily self-educated. Had a massive theological library. Wanted to think about public issues. You you go to his library. We have only half of his library today. It's at Midwestern Seminary, Spurgeon Center there in Kansas City, and um, you can see he's got all kinds of books on a wide array of issues. He read on history and economics and social thought and political theory and. You know, so he cares deeply about those issues. I think he'd be glad that Christians are thinking through them carefully. Uh, he founds a pastor's college himself. Now, it's not primarily founded to be this higher-level intellectual institution, high-level academic institution, but he values education, wants guys to think carefully, wants guys to read, wants men to know the classics and know Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Uh, but yeah, I, I think generally, Brandon, he would be positive about it uh, within limits, you know, in terms of what the object is is of the Institute. That would matter a lot to him. I don't know what a good example would be. Like there's this new world opinions thing that like Al Mohler and Andrew Walker and others are doing. I tend to think he'd view that pretty positively. The effort to bring Christian, careful Christian thought into the public arena. I know there's some controversy surrounding world opinions, mild controversy there, but, um, you know, efforts, efforts to bring Christian perspectives to the public sphere. I think generally he'd be positive about. Yeah. 
that's good. Brandon, do you have another any follow up questions? I'm done now. I'm done. Yeah, that's it. I we need to. <laughs> me and Brandon are gonna have to start like thinking about these things. When any time we do a historical figure, this, that's what's fun is trying to yeah. be anachronistic and bring them into the contemporary fray. But anyway, uh, Alex, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, do you have any? Closing, oh, thanks for having me, guys. Any closing? Well, if, if I. If if I could just make a, a plug for a couple things coming out to keep your eye on in the world of Spurgeon, definitely Ray Rhodes' biography. And again, it's like 2024, I think it's supposed to come out. So we're we're a few years from that. But pray for Ray. And uh, it's exciting what he's doing. I think he's going to be in London here pretty soon. And that's great. Um, and then uh, Jeff Chang has a book coming out on Spurgeon's pastoral ministry, which will be so helpful. Um, uh, it's connected to what Jeff wrote his dissertation on he wrote on Spurgeon's ecclesiology. I think his dissertation is going to be published with Christian Focus, but this is more narrowly on Spurgeon's view of pastoral ministry, which I would I would really encourage guys to pick up and to think through. I mentioned I, I got the book coming out on mercy ministry. I hope that'll enrich our view of Spurgeon as well. So so there's some work being done that's that's exciting in the world of Spurgeon and uh keep an eye on those brothers and some of those publications coming out. I think that'll uh that'll enrich our view of Spurgeon. That's good stuff. Well, I you heard it here first, so go get those the copies of those books. Depending, so our recording, I feel like we've recently seen a jump in listeners, and now they're going back and listening to old episodes. So if you're listening to this like three years from when you're recording it, maybe the book is available. So at that point, you can go get Ray Rhodes' bio right now. I'm speaking prophetically into the future. It, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. I'll, well, and I think I think I think Jeff's book comes out in 2022 at some point, if I'm not mistaken. You've had Jeff yeah, on here yeah. before. Maybe you talked to him about that. So yeah. perfect. So if those are available, go get a copy of them. If they're not, marketing your little phone so you remember. You know, you've got your book list wherever you keep that of things you want to buy. Stick it on there as well as these other resources that we mentioned that have been out. I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes so you can just click the button and it'll take you right there so you can get it, including J.C. Ryle's Simplicity in Preaching. I'll find the free copy so that you can just click it and have it. Uh, otherwise, thanks, Alex. This has been a lot of fun. Hopefully this is, you found this helpful. Uh, those who are listening, as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on, on the pl- in the planet, on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.